Social Justice Center of Marin. Contact Justine for details. 415-883-8188. These are your listener-supported radio stations, KPFA, KPFB, Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock and time for Cover to Cover Open Book. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, the oldest and largest collection of public radio programming in the United States. And welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes that history out of the vault and back on the radio. In this edition of From the Vault, we present our earliest known recording of Japanese Americans and their families living in California, talking about life in America. The year was 1959, and KPFA in Berkeley, California, opened its doors and its microphones to welcome the Japanese Americans to tell their stories. I stayed in the first grade about uh, two or three days. Well, at the end of about one month, they put me up to, I think it was fifth grade. When I was about 18, my father uh, went back to Japan. From there on, I couldn't go to school, so I had to quit school and work myself. The Japanese began to immigrate to America by large numbers in the late 1880s through the earliest 20th century. By 1942, there were 127,000 Japanese Americans living in the continental United States. And of those, 112,000 were living on the West Coast. This is a classic example of the American dream, an immigrant group working hard, raising their families, and making an effort to assimilate and make contributions to their new home country. That all changed following the imperial Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into World War II full throttle. Soon after that event, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, authorizing the internment of all the 112,000 Japanese living on the West Coast. This extraordinary act of wartime hysteria and racism would only be officially acknowledged when President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which provided $20,000 to surviving detainees and their heirs, totaling $1.6 billion. But now we turn to our extraordinary recording of Japanese Americans and their families from 1959, talking about family life before the war and how the internment process changed their lives forever. This program was produced by Marshall Windmiller from Pacifica Station KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, California. You will hear from ordinary citizens, teachers, students, lawyers, architects, and farmers. But you'll also hear from Hito Akato, one of the founders and past presidents of the oldest and largest Asian civil rights group. It was called Japanese America Citizens League, and it was founded in 1929. We're proud to present Marsha Windmiller's program, Japanese in California, from 1959. Pacifica Foundation presents The Japanese in California, one of a series of programs dealing with racial minorities, Produced by KPFA Berkeley under a grant from the Columbia Foundation. There are only about 160,000 Japanese in the United States, and most of them live on the West Coast. They refer to themselves as the Issei, Nisei, and Sansei. That is the first, second, and third generations. The Issei began coming to America in the 1890s, but their numbers were greatly limited by legislation designed to keep out Orientals. Only their children, born in this country, are citizens. 
The program you are about to hear makes no attempt to exhaust the subject or to recite all the facts of history. It is rather a verbal montage of the characteristics of a group and an attempt to convey something of the feeling of what it is like to be a Japanese in California. I dreamed about America, heard uh, quite a bit from my father, and uh, I sure wanted to come over here and see what kind of a country <laughs> it is. You know. Led by that dream, this Issei came, as we or our ancestors all came to America, to face the day-to-day -day facts of existence on foreign soil. Each of the many voices you will hear speaks not only for an individual, but for countless others like him, sharers of the dream, participants in the events. Who can say how much the dream helped to create the reality? Well, when I first came, there wasn't uh, very many Japanese boys to go to school. And uh, most of the people were old men, no women folks, you know. And, uh, well, everywhere you go, uh, you didn't see, uh, you just see a man, a Japanese. Uh, no families or... Uh, not know of their own house to live in. So the first thing uh, when I came over here, I had to stay with uh, friends. A couple of years after I came over here, uh, women started to come in. I stayed in the first grade about uh, two or three days. So the second grade, third grade uh, well at the end of about one month they put me up to I think it was fifth grade well I stayed in uh, in American family I stayed in as a schoolboy, and uh, of course I studied uh, pretty hard there and I was of course I was old too old to be uh, with a with a first, second, or third grade. You see, I think that was the reason that uh, they put me up in a uh, upper grade. My father was working, and only way uh, I could, I had to work and help him too. Uh, so I had to go in as a houseboy. Uh, when I was about. Uh, Eighteen, my father uh, went back to Japan, and uh, from there on, I couldn't uh, I couldn't go to school, so I had to quit school and work myself. In Stockton, there was a uh, hub in uh, downtown area, which. Uh would be comparable to the, uh, what they call Japanese town in San Francisco. And, uh, my father was, uh, he built the, I think he was the first, uh, Japanese, uh, well, immigrant to build a, build his own home in Stockton. 
And in so doing, we moved, uh, well, more or less to the outskirts of town. It was still what you would consider the wrong side of the tracks, but it was uh, an area in which he was able to, uh, uh, well, obtain a lot and build a home. The neighborhood was, uh, well, as I recall, now was predominantly an Italian uh, neighborhood, and uh, they didn't seem to mind. Then the many Japanese families moved into the area, and uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, uh, oh, within a four or five block radius, I imagine there must have been 20 Japanese families, and the rest of the families were probably of Italian uh, origin. It's just something that you know that you're different and that you're somehow not part of the community. And uh, I guess you feel it more in a, you know, in a rural community. My brothers, however, can distinctly remember being stoned and this kind of thing when they were growing up. But uh, it was less open. Um, it led two different lives, I recall. Uh, you went to school with them and you engaged in all kinds of activity with them in the school. But once you were out of school, then the line was clearly drawn. You never saw each other socially uh, it was just very very clear and you, you left it at school all this idea of democracy is just forgotten the minute you leave the school well I think in those days I didn't uh, mind it too much uh, although the minorities uh, the Negroes, Mexicans, Chinese and Japanese were in, in a somewhat a segregated part of town uh, the schools weren't segregated, however, and uh, it, it hadn't. Uh, I hadn't given great thought to uh, human relations in those days. But uh, thinking back on it, I did realize that although I had Caucasian friends, uh, we never invited them to our home, nor was I invited to theirs. I lived on a farm, truck farm, dirt farm, and. Uh, I grew up during the Depression. I was a kid during the Depression, a young kid. And the well, my friends, it was, it was sort of an intermixed community. And there was Mexicans, and we didn't play with too much. It was a rural community. And neighborhoods were far. Our closest neighbor was another Japanese family about oh maybe three quarters of a mile away and whenever we did play with anyone we played with them which was maybe once a month. There was Japanese families say within a radius of three four miles who sort of had a community of their own and they were quite a few of them let's say about half the old men were uh, quite nationalistic and they tried to carry on Japanese traditions and ceremonies and so on they had a Japanese school
class is uh, we call uh, Buddhist Japanese class. We start with uh, uh, a short ceremony with the gassho. Gassho is this uh, um, salutation to the uh, Buddha, and also end with the gassho. And the uh, main purpose of this class is uh, uh, to give them. Um, some uh, uh, religious um, knowledge through a language acquaintance because uh, many uh, uh, terminologies in uh, Buddhism are mostly untranslatable, uh, hard to translate in. Uh, we we could, uh, can't find a very adequate or suitable word in the English. So uh, sometimes uh, using uh, original Japanese or original Sanskrit Chinese word are more convenient. So in that point, we need, uh, we feel the necessity of giving the small children the knowledge of Japanese. So our purpose is to give the religious education as well as uh, uh, language knowledge. So we call this uh, a Buddhist Japanese class. I do feel that that uh, language is something that uh, we should maintain in some form or another, at least uh, in terms of talking. Maybe not so much reading, but at least talking, which I'm not very good at. And uh, I could get by, but I mean, I certainly could learn a lot more than I already know. With the older generation, you can get by by speaking half Japanese and half English. I have many friends who speak Japanese only. I have a friend who is, uh, was educated in Japan. I have a friend uh, who came from Japan after the war. And I have a, a friend uh, who is so-called uh, you are listening to Japanese in California, a 1959 documentary produced for KPFA by Marshall Windmuller in 1959. If you'd like more information about this documentary or to get the complete recording, give us a call at 1-800-735-0230 or you can visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org. This program was discovered as part of a grant project we did with the American Archive funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting highlighting civil rights recordings. As we looked at the civil rights that were addressed by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, we saw a lot of areas that were missed. And in, in addition to the African American civil rights, Latino Chicana civil rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, Japanese American rights. We also were able to influence and contribute to the idea of disability rights, mental patients rights, and other rights that have been. And now back to the incredible testimonials from 1959. associations to protect their rights. The organization of the Japanese is the JACL, 
the Japanese-American Citizens League. Yeah, I was one of the um, founders of the JCL in San Francisco way back. And uh, it was, even then, it was very hard to get started in those days because uh, these were quite pro-Japanese at that time and they didn't like the idea of us uh, organizing a citizens' group. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the first uh, group was organized in, in Fresno and they, were, they called themselves the American Loyalty League. And then Seattle had a group called the Progressive Citizens League, and we were the first ones to to uh, to uh, uh, form under the Japanese American Citizens League. We've organized that in San Francisco. Saburo Kira was a big uh, big man in JCL, and some of us got together and organized the JCL. I served as president two or three times, and uh, we really had a very lowly start. Well, they used to say couldn't join anyhow, but uh, a lot of them uh, tried to prevent their sons and daughters from coming in at that time. Well, a lot of them were bitter because they, they weren't able to get citizenship and uh, there was a lot of prejudice. So they felt that uh, as long as we were treated as uh, orphans, why should we be, be uh, loyal to this country? But that attitude has changed an awful lot since. This was uh, way back in 20... 29 or 30, around there. And we had a very difficult time getting that thing started. I remember Keto and I just alternated presidency there for five or six years before we take over. All of my children speak English because it's hard for me to teach right now. Uh, if I talk to Japanese in, to them, it's all right, but I try to speak English, and if I speak Japanese between them, I don't think too good, so I try to speak English now. And then since um, they speak English outside anyway, but um, I like them to learn Japanese. So my oldest boy is going to be six, so I once in a while try to teach them him. He's interesting, too, and uh, uh, he copies what I say. But, uh, I don't know if this is a bad or uh, good. The Japanese is the uh, number one people who uh, forget about the uh, Japanese language. So, uh, you see, especially compared with the Chinese or um, other uh, Spanish-speaking people, uh, they... Uh, most other people, even uh, second or third generation, uh, speak very fluent uh, mother language. Uh, but uh, this Japanese generation, uh, already second generation, uh, their knowledge of the Japanese are very poor. So very fast to uh, forget. That means... Uh, in one point they're very bad, but in another point their uh, assimilation is very good, I think. In 
1941, there were 112,000 Japanese on the Pacific coast. Two-thirds of them were American citizens. By the end of 1942, they had all been forced to leave their jobs, give up their homes and businesses, and be interned behind barbed wire. They had not been charged with any crime. They had merely had Japanese ancestors. And on December 7th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy had attacked Pearl Harbor, and the United States had gone to war with Japan. Playing golf that morning, and when I came home, long time I heard about. It, I didn't dream that we would be evacuated. I, was, I thought that as American citizens that we would be protected this way. We thought maybe the alien Japanese would be evacuated, but not the citizens. And we felt it was quite discriminatory because the Italians and the Germans were enemies too, and、uh, the East Coast was just as vulnerable. There were submarines lurking in that area, but they never moved any of them because they were strong.、Uh, they settled in that. That area, they had influence, influence, and influential people backing them. And then we、uh, were here for some time, but then we were evacuated to、uh, to Tanfran, the、uh, the stables of Tanfran. There, stayed there for some time, and we shipped to、uh, Topaz,、uh, Utah, where I stayed for a while. But I was one of the first to leave and go to Chicago, where we were more or less in free territory, live our own lives. I don't like it because、uh, why Japanese alone? How about the Chinese,、uh, German, and Italian? They in,、uh, was in the same situation, but because we are, you know, so-called、uh, Orientals and, and flat nose and、uh, funny eyes,、uh, we are kicked out of the state. Not because Japan was close to the, you know, Pacific coast. I don't believe. The German or Italian or, or any other group could have done the same damage if they wanted to for the national security, but they weren't kicked out.、Uh, I went to、uh, one of those, you know,、uh, assembly centers. I didn't like it, of course.、Uh, the first thing I had. I had was to go to Idaho to work in a farm. I grabbed that chance and I went to Idaho, working on a farm.、Uh, mostly in the summertime and autumn, and then、uh, wintertime they didn't have too much work. So uh, I uh, went into、uh, one of those,、uh, <laughs> uh, you know, camp.、Uh, from there I uh, uh, volunteered for the army. Uh, for the, of course,、uh, at the army language school to become an interpreter, or you know, or some uh, language, you know, language、uh, thing. Then、uh, I went overseas, stationed in Guam, and now.、Uh, For a little while, I was、uh, working on one of those station, radio station, listening to the,、uh, you know, Japanese、uh, radio, and then、uh, Japanese army and、uh, navy、uh, 
radios and all this. And there's a chance came and oh, so I be I was able to volunteer for the a flight oh, over or around the Japanese islands. I volunteer for that. I guess I flew close to hundred hours flight time. And then uh, one day I got uh, wounded in Iwo Jima. So after that, I was in the hospital. And then they sent me back to the hospital over here in the state. I got discharged. And as soon after I got discharged, I got the job I got now. Terrible thing. That's the thing that I uh, that I felt about it. And I, I was working my way through school, and I was staying at the dean's place. And um, we had an idea that we were going to be moved. And the dean would not believe me when I would say we were leaving. That I thought we would have to be moved or something. And I remember the time that um, well, it was toward the end of the semester, and the army posted these things on the. The thing, and that was the first time I found out about it. And I remember running into the dean's office and saying, "I have to make arrangements to leave." And the dean would not believe it until you know, we dragged him out and showed it to him, and then he realized this was this was it. And then there was no time really to think about it because we just had to leave very quickly. And. You couldn't, in this small community, show any sympathy, and you'd be ostracized. And there was one, there was one white boy that went to school with us. He studied Japanese with us, and um, the poor fellow had to leave because he felt sympathetic toward us. Toward us, it's kind of an interesting thing. He's not living anymore, unfortunately. I can remember feeling like I was in a dream world, that all of this wasn't true. I felt like I was in a daze for months, it seemed like. And uh, in a way, we weren't prepared for it because my folks were prepared for it. They said they would be moved, but they didn't dream for one minute that we would be moved. The children would be moved. And... Uh, I guess what you call repressing it because I just all I remember was it's kind of a nightmare and that's the kind of a feeling that I had. We were rather naive. We didn't we knew we were American citizens, but nobody else knew that and we weren't you know, we didn't realize that. And so what happened was that uh when the uh when the war came, uh, that's exactly the situation in which we found ourselves that certain people who had worked among us, church people and uh, other people whom we had befriended in the course of our growing up and our parents had uh, knew us, but it was still a rather small minority of people who really knew us and understood us. But as far as the general public is concerned, they, they had no idea that... Uh, we were Americans, our loyalty was to this country, and least of all, our own government. 
And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We'd like to say a special thank you to Addie Gevins for helping us with this series, being preserved and represented to the Pacifica Network listeners. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks to all the Pacifica Station listeners who joined our summer school campus campaign and sponsored more schools with the From the Vault series. For more information, call the archives at 1-800-735-0230 or visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and past grants from the Grammy Foundation and the American Archive Pilot Project funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program was written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian DeShazer. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Thanks for listening. Prevention International, no cervical cancer, pink, P-I-N-C-C, invites you to attend our annual fundraising walkathon, Walk for Women of Africa. This benefit will be held at Lake Merritt in Oakland on September 24th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Enlist your friends and create a team and enroll to walk with us for only $15 per person and help us to screen, treat, and prevent cervical cancer in African women. The benefit is wheelchair accessible.